0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Say goodbye.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to History of the Great War, episode 215. In the aftermath of the First World War and the Russian Revolutions, four territories which had formerly been part of the Russian Empire in the Baltic region would all attempt to assert their independence. One of these, Finland, we discussed in the previous two episodes. This episode begins our three-part series on the three other territories, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. All three territories would be successful in their quest for independence, although there would be many points along the way where success for all of them, or any of them, seemed far from likely. The three Baltic areas all had well developed nationalist movements by the time the First World War was over. They all had somewhat similar experiences during the war, with German occupations being a key part of that experience. During these occupations, they had to contend with German leaders, who, in their racism, looked down upon the local population, and who believed that the locals needed to be civilized. After the Germans had to evacuate the territory due to the provisions of the armistice, the three areas would have to try and find their way through the incredibly turbulent Russian Civil War. This turbulence would destroy many other nationalist movements around the old Russian Empire, but these three Baltic countries would manage to use it to their advantage. Over the next three episodes, we will discuss each country in turn, and today we will begin with Estonia. The nationalist movements in the Baltic countries began to gather momentum around the 1850s, with a big jump occurring in the 1890s. This roughly mirrors the increase in nationalist sentiments around Europe as a whole. And one of the most important drivers behind this rise in nationalism was a renewal in the interest of Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian heritage, Old cultural features like language, folklore, customs, all started to feature more prominently in everyday life. This reinforced the idea that they were different than the Russians that ruled them. At the turn of the century, the Estonians and Latvians became much more assertive in their quest for some form of autonomy. The Lithuanian nationalist movement was not quite as developed as those in Estonia and Latvia, and this was at least partially due to the more rural demographics of Lithuania and its lower literacy rate when compared to its northern neighbors, but that did not mean that it did not exist in Lithuania. An important milestone would be reached for all three countries in 1905, and specifically during the 1905 Russian Revolution. In the years leading up to 1905, the socialist parties in all three regions had been growing in strength, and they had been able to make contact with the socialist groups in Russia. This would foster widespread support for the 1905 strikes and then revolution, which would see hundreds of people being arrested and deported from Estonia and Latvia. Over the following decade, the Baltic socialist groups would begin to pull away from the Russian socialists. This was due to a mix of nationalism and just a difference in their societies. In the lead up to the 1917 revolution, the Baltic socialists were probably closest in alignment to the Mensheviks and SRs, but their support was quite different. In Russia, the peasant support for the Mensheviks and SRs was firmly rooted in their land reform policies, but the drive for the kind of radical land reform that was being espoused by the Russian socialists did not find strong support in the Baltics. The Baltic peasants were generally more prosperous than those in Russia, owning more land and having a higher standard of living. They owned a far higher percentage of the land in 1917 than the Russian peasants, and this meant that their goals were different. This would also put them greatly at odds with the Bolsheviks when they took power. The three most important groups in all three Baltic countries were the indigenous groups, so that's the Estonians, the Latvians, and the Lithuanians, the Russians, and then the population of Baltic Germans. During the Crusades, so way back in the 13th century or so, most of the Baltic areas had at some point been occupied by the Germans, or at that point the Teutonic Knights, I guess. Even when the Crusaders had retreated, they left behind a large population of ethnic Germans, who made up the majority of the upper classes of the Baltic territories until the First World War. Their presence and power in these areas meant that German was often used for all official communication, and it was taught in all the schools up until the end of the 1800s. It would only be during the early years of the 20th century that the Russians would move in and try to begin to use Russian in these official capacities. The Baltic Germans would always receive special privileges from the Tsar, and for these privileges they gave their strong support to the leaders in St. Petersburg. During the 1905 revolution, this relationship only grew stronger, as both groups sought to control the more radical socialists and nationalists in the three countries. This was also a point in time when the relations between Russia and Germany were quite good, and it would only be in the years leading up to the First World War that this relationship would begin to fall apart. In the years immediately prior to 1914, the Baltic Germans would begin to be held under some suspicion by the Russian leaders. However, this brief period could not greatly reduce their centuries of influence on local culture. The start of the First World War would decisively change the future prospects for the Baltic countries. In all three areas, the nationalist groups, even though they demanded change, had always supported some kind of peaceful move towards autonomy. Autonomy that would probably see them ending up still within the Russian Empire, just with more rights and more freedoms. However, with Germany and Russia at war, this did not seem to be an option anymore. After the war started, the most commonly held belief was that if the Germans won, then, they, then these areas would be pulled closer to Germany, either through direct annexation or through the installation of German-controlled governments. If the Russians won, many were concerned that they would use this success to continue, and perhaps finalize, the Russification campaigns that were already occurring. When the Germans occupied the areas during the war, these assumptions would prove to be correct. During this time, the Germans attempted to bolster their support among the populations, and to put in place favorable governments. They were mostly unsuccessful in these efforts, having greatly underestimated the strength of the local nationalism and the fears of the people that they were going to be trading Russian masters for German ones. Then, in the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, the victory of Germany seemed to be assured, and this created many questions about the future of the Baltic region, few of which were answered by the time Germany was ultimately defeated in November 1918. This defeat would result in their retreat from the Baltic states, at least officially, that was part of the uh, armistice. This left a power vacuum that the nationalist groups in all three countries would attempt to fill. This vacuum was of course created, at least in part, by the Russian revolutions. The February Revolution was strongly supported among all three Baltic groups. And during the first half of 1917, both Latvia and Estonia were mostly controlled by socialist groups that were largely in line with the policies of the provisional government. During the summer months, the Bolshevik influence would grow. In Latvia, it would grow quite quickly, which would be one of the reasons for the prevalence of the Latvian rifles in the nascent Red Army. During the Bolshevik Revolution in the fall, there was not any open resistance among the Baltic countries. Support for the Bolsheviks was pretty sparse, especially in Estonia. But Lenin and the other leaders chose some policies that would keep the Baltics on side for several months. Specifically, they allowed elections to be held for local assemblies in early 1918. These elections would eventually be called off, which began the slide into war. With the German retreat in November 1918, the Bolsheviks would announce that they were renouncing all of the contents of Brest-Litovsk, which meant that they would soon intended to expand their power back into the West and back into the Baltics. This repudiation of Brest-Litovsk caused the nationalist groups to scramble to gain support from the Western powers. They would send representatives to Paris as early as the spring of 1918, and then after the German defeat, they would stoke the fears of a Bolshevik expansion. The late 1918-early 1919 period that this was happening in saw the Western leaders incredibly concerned about the spread of Bolshevism into Western Europe and this caused them to be strong supporters of the Baltic groups, who they saw as a valuable roadblock between the Bolsheviks and the rest of Europe. In the public area, this support was somewhat tempered by the support given to the whites, but surplus weapons and and supplies would be sent to the Baltic countries, items that cost the Allies little due to the fact that they were demobilizing their armies and most of the items were surplus anyway. This support would last throughout 1919, although it would begin to fade in 1920 as the Western governments moved towards more friendly relations with the Soviet leaders. By that point, all three of the new countries had benefited greatly from the Western support that they had been given, and they were stable and strong enough to be able to defend themselves without further support. The retreat of the Germans in late 1918 left the Baltic Germans in an odd situation. During the war, they had fully supported the expansionist policies of some of the German leaders. They had of course used their positions as Germans to reassert their power in the region. The German occupation then allowed them to reinstitute German structure and culture in many different areas of society, turning back the clock on some of the Russification activities of the previous decades. After the war, these activities would backfire. However, it should be said that their wartime policies, regardless of what they were, would not have significantly altered the views of the locals towards the Baltic Germans. There was simply too long of a history of the German upper classes being in control. The actions of the German occupation forces did not create resentment between the others and the Baltic Germans. They just exacerbated already existing feelings. Regardless of the exact root of these negative feelings or why they grew, as soon as the German troops were no longer present, retribution began. This retribution came in many forms, one of which was political. Agrarian land reform was always part of the platforms of the new governments in the Baltics, and this meant taking away land from the large landowners who just so happened to be predominantly Baltic Germans, and giving that land to other people. The Germans could do nothing about this. They'd always been a minority within the areas that they lived in, and so politically they were unable to prevent the measures from being put into place. As an example of what was happening here, in Latvia and Estonia, at the end of the First World War, land owned by the Germans made up around 2 million hectares of land. A few years later, that would be reduced down to just 50,000. In Latvia, the government took it a step further, and just straight up confiscated the money of any Germans that were held in Latvian banks. Over 90% of this money would be taken by the Latvian government. I guess you could call it a form of extreme taxation. In Berlin, the new Weimar Republic found themselves having to balance the situation around the Baltic Germans very carefully. Initially, they spoke out strongly in support of fair treatment for the Baltic Germans, stating that they would not be able to form official relations with any of the new countries that did not protect the rights of the German citizens. However, this policy would soften over the years as the Baltic states grew stronger. There was a desire in Berlin to begin to build better relations with the new countries, especially as they became stronger and stronger economically, and therefore much more enticing trade partners. This caused the Weimar leaders to no longer support the Baltic Germans, and instead to begin to distance themselves. They would purposefully do this, making it clear that the Germans in Germany were very different than the Germans in Latvia, Estonia, and the Lithuania. This would only really turn around during the negotiations with the countries for trade agreements, like the official discussions. In these agreements, there were often discussions about some form of compensation for the Baltic Germans for their confiscated property. The Baltic countries were often completely unwilling to even discuss these provisions. Uh, For Latvia, this would delay the official trade agreement by five years, due almost strictly to disagreements about the compensation provisions. In Russia, plans were being put in place to extend Bolshevik control into the Baltics even before the German defeat in November 1918. In August, a new group, called the Central Bureau, was created to help coordinate the various activities of the communist groups within Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarusia, Ukraine, and Finland. This central committee then established and maintained contact with the communist groups within those countries. These communist groups already existed, and they were for the most part already receiving some support from Moscow, but this coordination helped to organize things a bit more. These efforts were given greater priority as Bolshevik power began to solidify, which caused the leaders to look westward for further expansion of the revolution. There would soon be friction between the Russians and the other communist groups, though. In general, the representatives from the Baltic countries were very radical far more radical than the Russian communist leaders were at this point. The Baltic leaders wanted action immediately, violent action if that was the only thing available. This was at a time when the Russian leaders, and especially Lenin, were beginning to push for more moderate responses while the situation in Russia was handled. This more moderate approach involved the communist groups actually being involved in local government and building support politically. While this may have been a valid path to greater influence, it would be rejected by the Baltic communists, and instead they would move to more radical approaches. So now we come to the Estonians. During the 19th century, there was a steady increase in Estonian nationalist feelings. They saw the rise in importance of Estonian culture and language, and this classed with the Tsar's Russification programs around the turn of the century. During and after the revolutions, the Estonians, from a Western and white Russian perspective, were actually quite frustrating. They were not really motivated by anti-Bolshevik feelings. They just wanted an independent Estonia. That was their one and only goal, and they would work with any party that made that the most likely outcome. During their provisional government period, they would form an Estonian government, formed from representatives of all Estonian political parties, These representatives jointly demanded greater autonomy from the Russian leaders, and this autonomy would be granted in April 1917. This did not result in a truly independent Estonia, but it did create the autonomous governate of Estonia within the Russian Empire. Throughout the summer of 1917, the Estonian leaders would accept this, but then the October Revolution would happen and everything would once again change. Unlike the other Baltic states, Estonia would not spend most of the war under German occupation. However, after the October Revolution, German troops would arrive during the German army's advances that were done to try to push the Bolsheviks into signing the Brest-Litovsk Treaty. This would see the short period of Estonian autonomy come to an abrupt end. The burgeoning Estonian army that had been created was outlawed. Estonian leaders were arrested and sent to Grodno in Poland. This did not completely destroy the hopes of the Estonian leaders, especially over the next several months as the Western Front turned against Germany. But if the Germans had won the war, it's likely that they would have created a new state that would have combined Estonia and a large part of Latvia. This new country would have then seen Adolf Friedrich, the Duke of Mecklenburg, installed as its new head of state. While this was a long-term goal, for the duration of the war, the area would be led by a council of four Baltic Germans, three Latvians, and three Estonians. This council was controlled by the German leaders through the Oberost command structure that was set up by Hindenburg and Ludendorff during their earlier advances in the east. With the collapse of the German armies in the west, many of the Estonians that had been arrested at the beginning of their occupation were released, including Konstantin Potts, who would be one of the leading figures during the fight for Estonian independence. The retreat of the German troops and the growing violence in Russia convinced the Estonian leaders that some kind of military organization needed to be created, and it needed to be created very quickly. They would call for volunteers in late 1918 with some pretty disappointing results. One of the most pressing problems was that the Estonian leaders were recruiting an army to fight for independence, and there were many Estonians who believed that this movement was destined to fail. It was hard to motivate people to fight for something that they believed would most likely result in failure. The turning point would be when land grants were promised to volunteers, land that would be created by the agrarian reforms that everybody was promising. This did cause a surge in volunteers to enter the Estonian army, which was critical because fighting was already beginning on the borders. The geography of the border region between Estonia and Russia at this point in history would shape the nature and type of fighting. Prit Butar in the Splintered Empires, the Eastern Front 1917-21, would discuss the geography and how it would affect the operations of the two armies. This is a long quote, but absolutely worth it. Quote, the border between Estonia and Russia is dominated by Lake Paipas, with the result that land routes for combat operations are either north or south of the lake. To the north, the confrontation would be across the river Narva, with the city of Narva itself forming part of the battlefield. This area offered the most direct route for the Russian advance towards the Estonian capital, Tallinn, which was previously known by the Russians and the Germans as Reval. But the northern flank of any such operation would be exposed unless the sea was controlled by the Russian navy. Consequently, naval operations would play a major role in the fighting. To the south of Lake Pipis, any Russian advance to the Baltic coast, roughly along the border between Latvia and Estonia, could conceivably come under pressure from either flank. As a result of these geographic constraints, the conflict in the northern part of the Baltic region, which became known as the Estonian War of Independence, saw a repeated thrusts by either side north of Lake Pipus. And although the same territory changed hands on several occasions to the south of the lake, the fighting tended to follow a pattern a Bolshevik attack, an Estonian counterattack against its flanks, which would be successful. End quote. As an aside, Butar's books on the Eastern Front are by far the most detailed accounts I've found in English. I highly recommend them, but sometimes they're a little dry and hard to get through. But there's really good information in there. The first Soviet invasions would be executed by the 7th Army. They would be opposed by a scratch-forth of Estonian troops with some German assistance. The Russians would attack during December before the Estonian leaders had truly established themselves, which resulted in some chaos on the Estonian side. This resulted in some initial successes for the Red Army, which eventually saw them in control of about half of Estonian territory. This had a unifying effect on Estonian society, with groups like the Baltic Germans and the other upper classes throwing their support behind the new government in Tallinn due to how they were being treated by the Russians. While the Red Army was pushing its way into Estonia, Estonian representatives were discussing the situation with the Western powers, seeking their support in the fighting. The Allies, and for the Baltic areas, the British specifically, were interested in assisting. The leaders in London made it clear that there were limits to their support, specifically they could not send troops, but they would arrange for some Royal Navy ships to be sent. This fleet would eventually be made up of five light cruisers, nine destroyers, and seven minesweepers, under the command of Rear Admiral Edmund Edwin Alexander Sinclair. On the scale of the Royal Navy, this force was quite small. But in the Baltic Sea, with the German Navy interned in Scapa Flow, and the Russian Navy almost non-existent, it represented the most powerful naval force in the region. Alexander Sinclair was told to support the Estonian and Latvian leaders, but to make it clear that he would not be joining in the fighting on land. His ships would be loaded with weapons and munitions, which he would then offload in Estonia, but his men had to stay on the ships. When they arrived off the coast of Estonia, and after a bit of an adventure in an old German minefield that saw the loss of one of the destroyers, they would quickly become involved with the fighting. Alexander Sinclair would send two two cruisers and five destroyers along the coast to Narva. At this location, they were able to bring the large road which ran along the coast under fire, preventing Soviet forces from being able to use it. With the coastal road being one of the most important supply routes for any Soviet advance to the north of the lake, the Estonians in that area were given a bit of a breather, and they would use this to begin to prepare for a counterattack in the south. The Estonians would have two major advantages for the coming attack. The first was the British ships, which guaranteed control of the seas, as well as some protection from Soviet attacks from the north. The second advantage was a group of Finnish volunteers which arrived in January 1919. 3,500 Finns would volunteer to go to Finland to help fight against the Russians, and when they arrived they brought extra weapons and munitions with them. Beyond the material support that they provided, they also arrived with very high morale. They were coming off of their own fighting against the Red Forces in their country, which many believed had been supported by the Russians, and they'd won. And they brought that high morale into the Estonian units as well. To prepare for the attack, the Estonians had concentrated the 13,000 men. They would also use several armored trains, which were built specifically for the attack. These trains mounted machine guns and 6-inch artillery that were invaluable bastions of fire support, even if they were a bit limited in their positioning, because they're trains. The Estonian attack would focus on moving south, to the south of Lake Prepis, with their first target being the city of Tartu, which they would liberate on January 14th. One of the Estonian armored trains would play an important role in this attack, moving directly through the Russian defenses and into the middle of the city. The next major target was the village of Valga, an important target because it controlled the rail link between Estonia and Latvia. The fighting in this area would be fierce, but some Finnish volunteers arrived and helped to tip the balance in favor of the Estonians. The units of the Latvian rifles who had been defending the town were forced to retreat on February 1st. After Volga was in Estonian hands, Soviet forces in southern Estonia were forced to retreat back to the east, due to the difficulties involved in moving troops and supplies into the area while the Estonians controlled the rail network. By the end of February, all of the territory that the Estonian leaders claimed as Estonia was free of Russian forces. The liberation of the country was accomplished, but the Estonians were still far from comfortable in their position. Bolshevik forces were still strongly ensconced in Latvia, and therefore the Estonians signed a mutual defense agreement with the Latvian nationalist government. This would come into play later in the year, when the Estonian army would march south to help the Latvians push out the Soviet Red Army. Before they moved into Latvia, the Estonians would have to fight off some attacks by the Red Army in the north, where they launched several attacks between February and April. Here, the Estonians were reinforced by the British ships from the sea, and also by White Russian forces that had taken refuge in Estonia. Over the next several months, the Estonians and the Whites were able to hold back several attacks, until eventually the Red Army was forced to give up on the idea of entering Estonia from the north. During the spring, the Estonians would have another set of elections, which would see the Social Democrats win a third of the votes. They were then able to implement the promised land reforms, solidifying their support among some of the rural populations, an important step in moving the country from war to peace. In episode 205, I discussed the attacks of General Yudenich, the Russian white general who attacked Petrograd from Estonian territory in late 1919. I will not go over all of that information here, but I do want to touch on it since it is an important piece of the story of Estonia during this time period during may 1919 the estonians again with the help of white forces attacked to the south of lake pipas eventually capturing the city of Pskov. they gave the territory that they captured in this offensive all of which was very clearly russian over to Yudenich and the white political leaders they did this both from a publicity perspective not wanting to look like conquerors but also because they wanted the white forces out of estonia to accomplish both of these goals, they essentially created a white Russian buffer state, which served their purposes very well. The whites would take over the area and use it as a base of power for future operations. udinich would then begin planning for his attack on Petrograd, which would be unsuccessful. After his failed attack, udinich would retreat back into Estonian territory, where he hoped to recover and try again. The Estonians would not allow this to happen, and they would disarm and intern the white forces. This would be a critical point in Estonian and Soviet relations, and preventing any future attacks by the Whites would help buoy relations between the two countries and put them on a path to peace. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next week as we continue to discuss the fate of the Baltic countries, moving our eyes a bit to the south and to Latvia, where the struggles for power would be much bloodier than those in Estonia.